It's been said that we live in a world where anything is possible and yet nothing is certain. A world in which there is more and more information and yet less and less meaning. Do you ever feel that way? So much information and yet so little meaning. A world where anything is possible and yet nothing is certain. Well, friends, in a world like this, it's hard to consider religious truth claims, isn't it? You know, 60% of Americans believe that religion is really a matter just of personal opinion and of subjective truth. You know, religion is really relegated to that realm of feelings and subjective opinions. And yet at the same time, more than half of Americans also believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. So friend, my question to you this morning, are those two claims consistent? Are both of those claims consistent? Does it make sense for the majority of Americans on the one hand to say that religion is a mere matter of private personal opinion and yet on the other hand turn and say that Jesus is a good moral teacher? I wonder what you would say to that because maybe that would describe you. You know, maybe you agree with Gandhi who said that Jesus, to me, is a great teacher among a world of great teachers. And if that's you, I would understand that was exactly the position I found myself in for years. Maybe at the same time you would kind of uh, equate religion, right, to art, sort of one and the same. You know, it's all about sort of preferences and opinions. Beauty, right, is in the eye of the beholder. And if that describes you, what do you then think this great moral teacher, Jesus, would have to say to you? What do you think he would have to say to you? Well, friends, the good news is that he doesn't leave us to guess. He actually tells us. He actually tells us how we should think about these competing claims. So let me invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 12. I invite you to turn there. We're going to be uh, in verses 18 through 44. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, hopefully you grabbed one of these uh, worship guides as you came in, and, and you can find the text of the message on pages 9 and 10. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. He's entered Jerusalem, right, to the adulation of the crowds, and yet, at the same time, the religious authorities, well, they're not so enamored with Jesus, right? This rabble-rouser, well, he is threatening the established status quo. And so they come, the religious authorities do, and they've been testing him, right? One after another, we've seen really in successive waves, kind of like some World War II aerial bombardment. So first, the whole Sanhedrin descends upon him at the end of chapter 11. They seek to intimidate him, demanding by what authority, like what are your credentials to do the things, Jesus, that you're doing here in the temple? And when that doesn't work, they send the Pharisees and the Herodians, remember last week, the end of our passage, they send them to trick Jesus by asking him whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. And those two first bombardments, right, they haven't hit their mark, right? The temple authorities, though, they're undeterred, and we're going to see they're going to send yet this morning another wave and another wave to try to soften up those defenses and wear Jesus down, try to capture him and trick him in his words. So we're going to pick up chapter 12 beginning in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. We read, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, there are plenty of debates. There's lots of verbal sparring going on in our text this morning. But one thing that everyone seems to agree on is that Jesus is a teacher, even a respected teacher, It's actually, if you recall last week, how the Pharisees approached Jesus back up in 1214. Teacher, they say, we know that you are true. Remember, they go on and they butter him up. It's how the Sadducees, at the start of our passage this morning, it's how they address Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 19, they refer to him as teacher. It's how the scribe in the next scene refers to Jesus, 1232. He says, you are right, teacher. It's what we see Jesus doing, 1235, there in the temple, and Jesus taught, we read, in the temple. Verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, and though the word teaching is not explicitly used in that that scene with the widow and and her offering, right? Jesus calls his disciples in 1243, and he calls to them, and he said to them, and then he what? He teaches them. He teaches them. Jesus was a teacher, and of that there is, there's no doubt. What I want us to do, though, is to take a closer look at his teaching to consider just what it was that Jesus taught so we can understand what kind of a teacher Jesus truly is. So the bell has rung, class has commenced. All right, let's begin. The first lesson 
Jesus has to teach us, right there in his opening dialogue with the Sadducees, lesson number one of Jesus' teaching, some religious teaching is wrong. That's the first lesson he's teaching us and his disciples and the Sadducees. Some religious teaching is wrong. It's wrong. Now, this is, in fact, the only time the Sadducees are mentioned in Mark. They were an aristocratic uh, class, really a priestly class. So they were, in fact, more wealthy and they were more worldly. And they made their living through those temple exchanges, which Jesus just upended last chapter. But there were really two key things about the Sadducees that are going to help us in understanding the text this morning. First, they actually rejected all of the writings uh, of the prophets and of the Old Testament histories, they rejected all of that Old Testament as scripture. So the only scripture that the Sadducees recognized were the first five books, right? The Torah, Genesis there through Deuteronomy. So that was their scripture, just those first five books. But the second thing Mark actually tells us explicitly, he says they rejected the resurrection. They actually rejected the resurrection. And so this group now, they come to Jesus, and they come with this question on, on leveret marriage. So lever is just Latin for brother-in-law. It's, it's where we get that word. But it's, it's really from Deuteronomy 25. And there in Deuteronomy 25, we read that if a husband dies without children, it's the responsibility of that deceased husband's brother to actually fulfill his obligation to give his wife children so that that man's line doesn't die with him so that it doesn't buy with them, so that there might be an heir. But it's clear the Sadducees, they come with this question to Jesus, but actually their concern is not at all with the law itself. No, instead, they create this rather ridiculous scenario where there are seven husbands, and all seven of the husbands die, and there is no offspring. And so the question comes there in verse 23, they say, in the resurrection... Right When they rise again, whose wife shall she be? Or will she be? Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So you can imagine the Sadducees. Right At this, they're winking at one another. They're laughing at one another. They're poking one another in the arm. They see this as a ridiculous question that Jesus can't escape from. Seven of them, right? Jesus, how's that going to work in the new heavens, the new earth? Like, is there, is there a husband for every day of the week? Right? It's just, they're trying to make it appear as ridiculous as possible. And they thought at this, they had him nailed to a wall. Now, you would think after all the people who had sought to cross swords with Jesus, right? How they think they're going to escape this unscathed, right? We're laughing because we know better. But they think they can do it. And notice Jesus' answer. He doesn't say, well, you know, yeah, you got a point. That's one way to look at it. Or, you know, if that understanding of the resurrection works for you, that's okay. You know, that'll work for me too. That's not what Jesus says. He says, verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I mean, recognize this would be like saying to a bunch of Goldman Sachs investment bankers that they know nothing about finance. That's the effect Jesus' words would have had because scripture, the Torah, and power, those were precisely the Sadducees' stock and trade. They thought of themselves as experts on such things. And Jesus is mocking them at this point. Verse 25, actually, Jesus answers the question of God's power. Right, and then in, he does that there. He's going to say in the resurrection life, right? There's there's not marriage, for it's an entirely different existence. Right, God will raise the dead to be more like angels. He says, and then in verse twenty six, that's particularly where he turns to correct their misunderstanding of Scripture, and importantly, what he does is he goes and he quotes from Exodus three which we had read for us earlier in the service. In Exodus, of course, note Jesus is grabbing a passage of Scripture that they themselves would have understood to be authoritative, right? It's within the Torah, right there within the law. And so Jesus grabs that Scripture, and what he's doing is he's setting up the battle on their turf, right? The very Scriptures of which they're to be experts. He's like, okay, let's talk about those Scriptures. What do they have to say? And he quotes verse, in verse 26 from Exodus 3, 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus says. And I think right there, what he's doing is he's basically making two different arguments. First, he's saying, listen, how did God reveal himself to Moses there at the burning bush? But as the great I am. That I am is a statement of being. Right? Yahweh is a living God, Jesus is saying. It's a statement about him and in God there is life. Everything about God is teeming with life. Jesus says. So why would the children of the living God therefore not live themselves? And yet second, right by referencing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus is noting how this living God, he's reminding them, yeah, this living God, he entered into an everlasting covenant with his people. And God does not make everlasting covenants with those who live and last but a breath and then expire, right? They burn out like a candle. That's not how an everlasting God makes an everlasting covenant. No, he's saying he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, i.e. the patriarchs live, Jesus says. And notice again his parting words in verse 27. You are quite wrong, (laughs) just to put a fine point on it exclamation point once again. Jesus is not mixing his words. Theology, he's saying, it's not like art. It's not like music. It's not just left up to our own subjective interpretations. Not all religious truth claims are equal, Jesus says. Some are wrong. They're just wrong. And how do we know which are wrong and which are right? Well, Jesus says, Scripture is the guide. Scripture is the guide. Notice here, he's quoting from Old Testament scriptures. Not just quoting the New Testament, right? Not just going to those red letter sections. Okay, not doing that. No, the Old Testament scriptures. You know, one of the interesting things, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus quotes from the law, from the histories, from wisdom and poetry, from the major and minor prophets, right? He quotes from from all of them. That's where Jesus grounds his claims. They don't know the scriptures. That's what they must know. Right? He's not saying they're wrong because he, Jesus, just doesn't like the implications of the fact that there's no resurrection. It's not they're wrong because he personally finds it untenable or offensive or uncomfortable. Jesus' feelings here, they're not the point. He's saying scripture is the point. What do the scriptures say? Scripture is the plumb line. Scripture is the standard. It is the measuring stick by which we consider religious truth claims. Friends, if that is how Jesus approached the scriptures, that's exactly how his followers should approach the scriptures. Which is why if you profess to be a Christian here this morning, you have to know these scriptures. It's why if you say this morning that you love Jesus, you need to stick with these scriptures. Because the one who professes to know Jesus and yet parts from these scriptures, who deviates from them, Jesus will say you are wrong. And if you continue reading throughout the Gospels, you'll come to find he'll say more than just you're wrong. He'll eventually come to say, if you part, I do not know you. I do not recognize you. We need to know our Bibles, lest we're led astray or lest we have nothing to say when someone comes to us and asks us for reason for the hope that we have. At the end of the day, we all as Christians show our devotion to Jesus by standing on the demands of this word. Now before we leave this section, I do want to flip back for a moment. Let's look again for just a moment at verse 25. Because verse 25 has caused a good bit of consternation among Christians. We read, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. 
And I'm not going to be talking about angels. I'm going to be talking about marriage. Because of all the scriptures dealing with marriage, I think it's safe to say that this is probably one you're not going to find on a wedding program. Probably not verse 25. No marriage in heaven, Jesus says. Now, frankly, that's a verse. I remember as a brand new Christian, I read it and I thought, what? What a strange verse. I confess, I still don't entirely understand this verse. Not, I mean, it's clear what it says. I just don't entirely understand what it's going to be like to be in the new heavens and the new earth and to look at my wife, and yet she's not my wife. That's a hard thing to grasp. Logically, I don't really get it. Emotionally, I really struggle to get it. But friends, I think part of what we have to recognize as we think about marriage in the scriptures is that biblically, human marriage is never ultimate. Human marriage is only meant to prepare us for that final wedding day when we will all, right, all of us will walk that aisle. Whether you are married or whether or not you are single, everyone in Christ will walk that aisle and they will on that day meet the one for whom their hearts have most longed for. They will meet their Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, I think we can safely assume that all relationships in God's presence will be profoundly deeper, profoundly deeper than anything we can experience in this life. So our relationship with Christian friends, with Christian family, even with our Christian spouse, will no doubt, I trust, be more intimate not less, but more intimate throughout eternity. And I can't quite grasp it, right? I don't fully get it. I'm just being honest there, but I do trust it, right? I do trust it, believing that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. All right, so moving on to the next scene. We've considered the first lesson. Let's think about lesson two from Jesus. And in this next scene, lesson two, we're going to see that knowing right doctrine doesn't make you a disciple. That's the second lesson we're going to see. Knowing right doctrine doesn't make you a disciple. Now, in these next three scenes, the conflict is going to shift, and we're really going to be, Jesus is going to be dealing with the scribes here, verse 28 verse 35, then again in verse 38. And the scribes were experts in the law of the three groups, right, that comprised the Sanhedrin that first went after Jesus. You got the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Of those three groups, the scribes were like the professional biblical exegetes. That was their job. They were the scriptural stars in Israel. So every one of those scribes, they were like the memory verse champions in the little you know, Bible classes for kids. That's who these guys were. And one of them overhears this debate Jesus is having with the Sadducees, and he's clearly impressed with Jesus and with Jesus' own biblical knowledge, right? This guy's saying, man, here's a teacher who actually knows his Bible and who's reasoning from the Bible and clearly explaining the Bible. And so the scribe, I think honestly, so I don't think he comes with pretense, not like some of the others have. He honestly comes, I think, to Jesus, and he puts a question. He says, which commandment, verse 29, is the most important of all? Which commandment's the most important of all? Now, just imagine for a moment uh, if your house was burning. Okay, these are the illustrations I should have thought of before I thought of the McCollums. Sorry, McCollums. But just imagine for a moment, house is burning, Yep. Oh, well, just keep going. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate the encouragement. <laughs> Kevin's like, it's all right. New heavens and new earth. All right. Well, it's burning. Kids and pets are outside. You got to rush in once. You have time to grab one thing. What do you bring? What do you bring out? What do you grab? The wedding album? Do you grab maybe the, the jewelry box with the grandmother's ring in it? Maybe an autographed baseball you have, a computer? Like, what do you go in and grab? Well, 
you judge what's most important, and then you just say, hey, listen, the rest can burn. It doesn't really matter. That's kind of how people think of this question the scribe is putting to Jesus. Right, Jesus, you tell me what Bible teaching is most essential, and the rest of it I can trust is non-essential. It doesn't really matter. I can just ignore it. That's how we think of this question, but that's actually not the question the scribe is asking. He's asking, what teaching of the Old Testament can properly be said to sum up the entirety of the Old Testament? So if you could capture Jesus, the teaching of the Old Testament, in a kind of summary statement, Jesus, how would you do it? Well, that's a great question. And again, it's actually not a trick question. The scribes would ask themselves and test themselves with questions like these. So though it's a common question, Jesus' answer, though, that is not a common answer. For he does hear what no one has ever done before him. And he combines Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19 in a way no other scribe had ever done. Right, Deuteronomy 6, what's referred to as, uh, as the Shema, just that's Hebrew for hear, which is how the verse opens, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he goes on to combine it with Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there is no commandment, no other commandment greater than these. So the whole of the Bible, Jesus is saying, can be summed up in the law of love. Love of God and love of neighbor. Which if you think of the Ten Commandments, first four, all about love of God. Then five through ten, all about love of neighbor. It makes sense what Jesus has done. But I want us to stop for a moment and just take special notice of exactly what he's teaching. Notice he's teaching, Jesus says, that God is one. That the Lord alone is God. Explicitly, Jesus is making that claim. Allah is not God. Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, right? They are not gods. Krishna is not a god. Zeus, Athena, Odin, not gods, Jesus says. There is, he says, only one God. For all the warm fuzzies that we may have when we think of Jesus and his own religious teaching, when it comes to polytheism or inclusivism, right, he's not warm and fuzzy about those things. He's very explicit and very direct, and he rejects them. The God of the Bible, he says, alone is God. And yet second, this one God, he says, notice, can be your God. Right? He's referring to as the Lord, our God. So this transcendent God can also be imminent and personal with his people. He can be personally known. He can be personally experienced. We can have a personal relationship with this one God. So while he is exclusively God, he inclusively invites all to him, all to know him, all to enjoy him. Now what does that look like? Third, Jesus says it looks like all of you. All of you, as in the totality of you, the entirety of your person. There are no half measures when it comes to knowing and worshiping this God, right? Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And it's wise not to divide all those things too, too sharply, right? Heart, soul, mind, strength. They all really function together to speak to all of who you are and all of what you do is to be given in worship to God. That's what Jesus is saying. Every aspect of our existence devoted to him. Jesus' answer emphasized the fact that God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the duration of our whole lives. Right? He's satisfied with nothing less than that. The devotion of our whole life for the duration of our whole lives. And fourth, notice, we tend to think of our relationship with God and, and of the demands he makes. We tend to think of our relationship with God in terms of duty. Following God means, right, I mustn't do that and I mustn't do this. But notice for Jesus, the heart 
of true religion does not lie in negative commands or blind duty, but in a positive love toward God and toward others. It's why Augustine would say, love God and do as you like. Because if you genuinely love God and genuinely love your neighbor, that, those two loves right there will always keep you from license, Augustine argued. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, 1 John 4, 8. For what? For God is love. So notice right here how Jesus' own answer, it guards against a kind of vapid mysticism on one hand and, and similarly a kind of cold formalism. So it, it does that in the sense that Jesus here, he's not talking about some disembodied, detached, mystic love of God. Like we get lost in that. That's not at all what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about some kind of cold formalism, right? It's me in a theology textbook. Or it's just me and my rote obedience. No, part of what he's helping us see is if we genuinely love God, such true religion will be concretely expressed in love for others, Right, so it's not just this mysticism or cold formalism on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's guarding against a kind of, a kind of humanism, a kind of even secular humanism, which would make religion all about this life and about humanity, about love of neighbor without ever air reference to God. He's blowing up all of those conceptions. But friends, here's the kicker. Right? All of this, yes, critical to understanding God, critical to knowing God, critical to being in the right relationship with God. But, and it's here, right? Here's what you must see. You can agree with all that I've just said as Jesus has been teaching. Jesus saying you could agree with all of it and still not be a disciple. Everything you can agree and yet not be a disciple. Because the scribe exclaims, verse 32, you are right, teacher, like, I like your doctrine, right? The, the scribe is thinking, Jesus, you passed my exam. You passed it. The scribe came to evaluate Jesus. What the scribe doesn't understand is that all along, Jesus has been evaluating him. He's been evaluating him. For Jesus responds, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You know, we may think it's our evaluation of Jesus that matters most, when in fact it's Jesus' evaluation of us that indeed is what matters most. Not far from the kingdom, Jesus says. You may like my doctrine, Jesus says, but you have yet to truly understand full devotion, right? Close but no cigar is what Jesus is saying to the scribe. Now, we like that expression, that expression, it's all about the journey, not the destination. It's a common expression we like. And you know what? If you're going hiking, you know, later this afternoon or sometime this next week, that's fine. It can be all about the journey. If you're going on a back road in a convertible and you're just cruising, it can be all about the journey, not the destination. But spiritually speaking, Speaking of our own sort of spiritual pilgrimages, right? We can talk about the spiritual pilgrimage. That's a common thing to do. It even sounds like a really pious thing to do as we talk about our pilgrimage with God. But friends, if it doesn't end up in heaven, there's nothing pious about it. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not there yet. Close, he says, but you haven't yet arrived and notice the scribe, he knows the scriptures, he knows his Bible. But knowing the Bible's commands is not the same as being in the kingdom, Jesus is saying. You can be an expert Bible scholar, that doesn't mean you're a kingdom citizen. And it's terrifying to think of what Jesus says to the scribe. To be within an inch of heaven, and yet destined for an eternity of hell. That's where this scribe stands right at the precipice, and we're not told. It's almost as if Mark wants us to stop and to put that question to us, to make us think, make us weigh and measure what we think of Jesus. You know, so to just those of us in the room, but maybe particularly to young adults, right, maybe your college students or high schoolers or, or even in elementary school, you need to listen really carefully 
to what Jesus has to say. You can have all the right answers. And you can have memorized all the right verses. You can know all the right doctrine. You can affirm all the right doctrine. That doesn't make you a disciple. That alone doesn't make you a disciple. A disciple affirms all of that by devoting the entirety of their lives, all they are, all they have to Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And friend, that starts when we give our lives over to him. When we recognize that he is God and that we are not. And that in our own sin and rebellion, small ways and big ways, we have walked away from this God. We have chosen our own path. Those pilgrimages are often messy. Which is why God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. So that all of those who see that they have actually walked away from this God, they've rebelled against this God, they can be reconciled to him by repenting of their sins and believing upon this Jesus. That's where it begins. That's where true devotion begins, by trusting in him, this one who died for sinners and then rose from the grave for sinners so that we can know the resurrection and the life that he had just talked to the Sadducees about. And that's where it begins, but that's not where it ends. It's not at all where it ends. Jesus is actually going to go on, and he's going to give us both a negative example and a positive example of what actual discipleship looks like. But before he does that, he's going to like, ah, one more lesson in the classroom. A third lesson before we get to this practical discipleship examples. Lesson three. Jesus is going to say, enjoying him, right, enjoying Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. So a third lesson we're going to see, enjoying Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. So again, we're going to pick up the scene. Next scene, verse 35. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And just consider that. There he is, verse 35, teaching once again in the temple. The final week of his life. But days to live. You can measure it in hours at this point. And Jesus is not starting a pack He's not pushing for sort of moral majority part two. He's not leading a political protest down at City Hall. He's not arguing about masks and COVID protocols. Right? The Pharisees tried to trap him in all those political discussions right back with the taxes. And they wanted to know, Jesus, whose side are you on? Right? Should we wear the masks, so to speak, or should we not wear the masks? But Jesus, right, he doesn't play their games. He wouldn't be drawn into their petty political debates. The single most important thing Jesus knew he could do in this moment was to teach God's people God's word. Even now, with his life measured in hours, what is Jesus doing at this next scene? He's teaching, right? All the political forays, it's not that Jesus says they're entirely unimportant, Rather, the best way, he's helping us see, the best way to align ourselves with the kingdom of God is to guard ourselves from becoming overly exercised and consumed with the kingdoms of this world. That kingdom is going away. Jesus doesn't promise to build it, to restore it, to renew it, but one day, he says, he will burn it. All of it. Which is why even now, he's opening up the scriptures and he's teaching God's people God's word. And that's no accident. Underscoring the centrality of the scriptures in the life of God's people. Nothing more important, nothing more pressing. The best way to be a citizen of this earthly kingdom is to first know what it means to be a citizen in Christ's heavenly kingdom. The single best way. If we the members of UBC, would put more of our energies into understanding what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom, just consider perhaps how the Lord might use that as we're citizens in this kingdom. Now after a day of questions, here's the irony, after a day of questions, it's now time for Jesus to give the real question of the day. Verse 35. 
How can the scribe say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, so right here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, the most oft-quoted passage in the Old Testament that we find in the New. And he's basically saying, okay, scribes, you've come with questions to me. Let me put a question to you. If you experts in the scriptures believe that the Messiah is David's son, which everyone believed, the Messiah would come from the line of David, how could David call that same one who would be his son, how could he call that same person my Lord? Because my Lord implies that this son of David is in some way more significant, greater, qualitatively different than David. So Jesus is saying, all right, you experts, how do you make sense of that? And the impression we get is the scribes had no answer. They didn't know what to say. They were speechless, which is probably why verse 37, the great throng heard him gladly. So the crowds right there, no doubt they enjoyed watching Jesus. Remember, he's this unlettered rabbi. He's a commoner like them, and he's taken it to the scribes where it hurts them the most, their self-proclaimed superiority in the scriptures. Kind of like those masses of, of Reddit users this week, you know, taking it to Wall Street, taking it to the man. Well, they probably felt somewhat the same way. But here's the thing. They're enjoying him. They're listening to him. But do they understand him? For with that quote, Jesus is actually pulling the curtain back. If they have eyes to see and ears to hear, he's revealing his own identity to them, who he really is. How could David's son be David's Lord? At one level, that's what the entire book of Mark is about. Who is this teacher, this Jesus of Galilee, this one who calls himself the Messiah? The answer, of course, is the Messiah is not simply David's son, but the Messiah is also God's son. That's the answer to the riddle. That's the astounding claim that Jesus is making. But they don't seem to get it. The crowds don't seem to fully grasp it. That expression, heard him gladly, we've seen it once before. It was used of Herod Antipas back with John the Baptist in chapter 6. That when John taught, Herod heard him gladly, we read. And yet, though Herod heard John gladly, that did not stop Herod from executing John. And in the same way, the crowds here are hearing Jesus gladly, but in just a few days, it's not going to stop them from executing Jesus. They're happy to be entertained by him, but that doesn't mean they're ready to entrust themselves to him. Friend, might that describe you? You know, we can read Jesus, we can be entertained by him, the way he sticks it to the man, which he does. It's entertaining. But enjoying Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. So what does it look like to know this Jesus? What does it look like then to be a true disciple of Jesus? To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how our scene ends, I think. Really two contrasting stories of discipleship. You've got this negative story, this warning against the scribes, followed by this positive story with the widow's offering. Negatively, we see, yeah, the scribes are in it just for themselves. They're in it to, to get out of it what they can. And Jesus will say of them, hey, listen, beware of these guys. They are not the path you want to follow. Their long robes, their deferential greetings, all their VIP seating, right? It's all pomp, it's all pretension, he says. While they have this great reputation for piety, at the end of the day, they're just about lying in their pockets. That's what Jesus says about them. And he's exposing them. They love the outward show. The empty glory of religious observance, right? The sin of pride is rife in them. They loved money. There's kind of a, a rapacity, a covetousness, a greed about them. And all the time they did this under the cover of these long extended prayers, lengthy prayers, which is nothing less than gross hypocrisy, Jesus says. This is, you can see, the antithesis of what it looks like to love God and to love neighbor. 
It's when religion becomes but a mask for personal glory and for personal gain. And sadly, it's all too common. And it's even all too common, sadly, in church leadership. Friend, you don't come to Christ to make you the better you. You come to Christ because he's worthy of all of you. That's what the scribes don't get. And of course, in acid contrast to the scribes, you've got this poor widow. And while the scribes are in it for themselves, what they can gain out of it, she seems to be in it for what she can give in the situation. So just picture the scene, right? You're in the temple complex. We're there. And at the temple treasury, you have these 13 brass receptacles. And they're all in the form of a trumpet, each one of these receptacles. And those brass receptacles, when you dropped coins into them, those coins would ring loudly, right, as they dropped into those receptacles. And of course, the heavier the coin, the more the coin was worth, the louder that coin would sound as it dropped, the louder the noise. Everything could be heard even when it couldn't be seen. And there were seats at the edge of the court here where you could watch. So this giving had become something like a spectator sport. Crowds would would ooh and ah as the wealthy came and slowly dropped those heavy coins one by one by one. Kind of like an NBA dunk contest. Remember what the what do the judges do? Like they hold up like, oh, it's a nine. That's what they're doing. The crowds, as the wealthy come and drop their coinage there into those receptacles until this poor widow approaches. And at the sight of this poor widow, the people, ah, they turn away. They're like, nothing to note here, nothing to note here. right? Cue the commercial. We can move on at this point. All are embarrassed, right? This poverty-stricken widow tattered clothes as she walked up and approached this brass receptacle. And yet Jesus' gaze, well, he's transfixed as the woman drops those two tiny coins, barely heavy enough to even register a sound, a nearly inaudible kind of clink as those two coins hit bottom, the kind of thing you'd have to even strain your ear to hear it. The crowds, they don't even bother to rate her performance. And yet Jesus grabs that 10 and holds it high. Verse 43, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing. Jesus, like she gave more than everybody. Now there's a whole lot I think we could say here, but Jesus is making at least two Simple, but I think profound observations. First, when it comes to giving, what matters most is not what we give, but what we keep back for ourselves. When it comes to giving, what matters most, it seems for Jesus, is not the amount we give, but what we keep back for ourselves. The wealthy had many large gifts to give, but then they climbed back in, likely to their shiny vehicles, and headed back to their fancy homes. And what moves Jesus is that this widow, she held back and kept nothing. She gave everything. When it comes to money, the true measure of our own discipleship is not what we give, but what we keep. But second, we're seeing God measures here our giving. He measures it proportionately, not absolutely. So we're like, hey, Jesus, $100,000 is a lot more than $1. That's how we would reason. And couldn't God do more with large amounts than he would with small amounts? The problem is Jesus doesn't seem to follow generally accepted accounting principles. He works on different standards. It's not the absolute size of the gift that delights God. It's It's what we're able to do in relation to what we possess. That's sort of the heart behind what delights him. So listen, you might be a student or you might be one who just has very, very little. And you might be thinking my $10 gift or my $100 gift in the light of a church with the budget that we have or whatever it might be, you might think, yeah, that's insignificant. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter whether I give it or not. But recognize someone can give a million dollars to an organization that then goes out and hires a bunch of staff, 
only to find out that through infighting and through malfeasance, that million dollars is largely squandered away and not much good comes of it. And yet, someone else could give that donation of $10 and it results in a Bible being put into someone's hand. And that person reading the Bible becomes saved. And that saved person becomes a preacher who then preaches and evangelizes and many are saved. Or maybe that Bible gets into the hand of someone who gets saved and that person who gets saved is himself a millionaire. Wealthy or not, God can multiply our gifts in whatever way he wants. He can use a small gift for a great purpose and he can use a great gift for a very small purpose. The point being, what we do with our wealth, however big or small, says everything about who we worship. She gave everything, heart, soul, mind, strength, the entirety of herself she gave. So friends, let's just go back to that original question. Is Jesus a great moral teacher? More than half of Americans think so. I wonder how you'd answer that question now, though. He clearly declared some religious teaching is wrong. Spirituality is not a buffet line. We pick and choose from. Certain things are wrong. And yet knowing right doctrine, he says, you can even get that right and you can still not be a disciple. You can have all the right answers and still even now be at enmity with God. Even enjoying Jesus even delighting in his teaching, the way he welcomes the weak and the way he rebukes the the proud and the powerful, that, Jesus says, is not the same thing as knowing him. You know, to borrow from the oft-used but so good, that quote, familiar quote from C.S. Lewis, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And just to be clear, in our passage, Jesus has clearly claimed to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Friend, what will you say about Jesus? Let's pray. Oh God, we delight, though it cuts right against us sometimes, and it can be hard to hear. We delight that in your kindness, you speak clearly to us. You speak bluntly to us. Jesus did not mean to be misunderstood. He put it out plain and clear, and Mark makes it clear. He is so much more than a teacher. He is your son who died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Oh God, may he be our only hope this morning. In Christ's name, amen.